You're listening to Life, the Universe, and Everything Else. Today on the show, Heresy! Life, the Universe, and Everything Else is a program promoting secular humanism and scientific skepticism produced by the Winnipeg Skeptics. You can email your questions, comments, or criticisms to us at podcast at winnipegskeptics.com. Show notes, references, and relevant links can be found at podcast.wordpress.com or at winnipegskeptics.com slash blog. My name is Ashley Noble, and I'll be your host today. Today, I have Laura Creek Newman. Hi there. Jem Newman. Hello. And Lauren Bailey. Hi. We have an exciting event coming up, and Lauren's going to tell us more about Skepticamp. We're doing Skepticamp again this year on September 16 at the St. Boniface Library. We're still looking for speakers. Our email address for speakers is in the show notes. And let me know what, who you are and what your topic will be. Topics can be about anything with regards to science and skepticism, critical thinking. You just have to be able to take questions afterwards. Yeah, we've got... A 30-minute blog for each speaker. It's about a 15 minutes worth of talking and 15 minutes of questions and answers. We also would love to have people come out and listen to all these great speakers. And we're also going to be having a bake sale to help raise money for our uh, website hosting fees. Hope to see you out. The event is completely free. And they're always a lot of fun. Uh, If you are interested in past Skepticamp talks, they're available on our website at winnipegskeptics.com slash skepticamp. You can watch and or listen to, I think, almost all of the talks we've ever had at Skepticamp. I think so. There was a couple that got lost in an uploading accident or something, right? Yes, a couple. (laughs) (laughs) All right, we'll see you on September 16. So the term heresy is from Greek, and it originally meant choice or thing chosen, but it came to mean the party or school of a man's choice, and also referred to that process whereby a young person would examine various philosophies to determine how to live. Thanks, Wikipedia. (laughs) The founder or leader of a heretical movement is called a heresiarch, while individuals who espouse heresy or commit heresy are known as heretics. And heresiology is the study of heresy. I really enjoyed learning about that etymology, so I put it in there, even though it's not really relevant. (laughs) You know how every, like, university course starts with biology, here's the root of the word, and this is what we will be studying. Webster says... Yeah. (laughs) Webster's Dictionary defines love. (laughs) Oh, God. Uh, So every religion defines heresy a little differently, as you would expect, and in modern context, heresy usually refers to views that are contrary to a particular religion or ideas that are contrary to the current dominant view. Uh, So some examples of definitions of heresy. The Codex Justinianus defines everyone who is not devoted to the Catholic Church and to our Orthodox holy faith a heretic. Woo! So that's pretty broad. Uh, Let's check out (laughs) Orthodox Judaism. Orthodox Judaism considers views on the part of Jews who depart from traditional Jewish principles of faith heretical. In addition, the more right-wing groups within Orthodox Judaism hold that all Jews who reject the simple meaning of Maimonides' 13 principles of Jewish faith are heretics. As such, most of Orthodox Judaism considers Reform and Reconstructionist Judaism heretical movements and regards most of Conservative Judaism as heretical. (laughs) 
So some religions even consider most of their own religion heretical. So that's fun. Yeah, so you don't have to look farther uh, than the set of Acantists, uh, which is a Catholic splinter group that views the current Catholic Church as heretical. Wasn't it basically Mel Gibson's dad who invented it? Uh, well, I, I think Mel Gibson's uh, father's splinter group are set of Acantists. Yeah, um, I don't, I don't know that he was the originator though. Uh, but they basically view everything since Vatican II as heresy. Oh boy! Well, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. They view the Pope as illegitimate. They're also called conclavists. Yeah, mass in English, not on my watch. Well, today we're going to cover a few folk who were heretical scientists, and some that weren't. Either way, most of these folks ran into serious issues with various churches and paid dearly for it. Uh, we're going to start in the very distant past and work our way forward. So that puts Jem up first. Before we get any emails, some people consider Mel Gibson's splinter group set of acantist. Some people consider it set of privationist. Uh, I don't know what the difference is. And it, frankly, I just stopped caring. So, <laughs> <laughs> Do you think anyone would have emailed us about that? It's a uh, very specific Only if Jem Newman is listening to this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Anyway. Dear Past Jim, <laughs> I'm writing to, to inform you. <laughs> so I was originally going to talk about Baruch Spinoza, but then I remembered that one of my favorite historical figures of all time was actually murdered by a religious mob in a truly horrifying fashion. So uh, I passed uh, Spinoza off in Lauren's direction. Uh, she's kindly going to talk a little bit about him. And today I'll be providing a crash course on the most famous librarian who wasn't actually a librarian, Hypatia of Alexandria. You got Jim's leftovers? Alexandria, situated on the coast of the Mediterranean Sea, is today the second largest city in Egypt. It was founded by famed Macedonian horse enthusiast Alexander the Great around 331 BCE. known for his cavalries. Sure. It doesn't make you a horse enthusiast. That's, that's the number one thing you picked to describe Alexander. <laughs> Dysentery sufferer? Mama's boy? <laughs> this segment ends with a violent mob tearing a woman limb from limb. I wanted to try to start off as light as possible. Uh, though it was founded by Alexander the Great, it actually sits on the site of an ancient Egyptian city known as Rakotas. Alexandria was the capital of Egypt under Hellenistic Roman and later Byzantine empires until the Muslim conquest of 641 saw the capital moved to Fustat, which later became part of Cairo. Alexandria was a maritime power in the Hellenistic Empire, but it was also a center of culture in Hellenistic Egypt. The lighthouse of Alexandria, Theros, was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, though Alexandria is probably today most famous for its great library. The Royal Library of Alexandria was established in the 3rd century BCE by Ptolemy I Soter, a Macedonian Greek general and deputy of Alexander the Great. The Ptolemaic dynasty remained a patron of the library throughout its rule until the Roman conquest of Egypt in 30 BCE. So when you imagine a library... What do you see? The most amazing building in the world. <laughs> Shelves of books. People sleeping. Scrolls. <laughs> Scrolls as far as the eye can see. <laughs> That's right. So the Great Library of Alexandria had very few items in its collection that 
looked like uh, what we know as a modern book today. Uh, instead of codices, as they were called at the time, the library's collection was made almost entirely of papyrus scrolls rather than parchment scrolls. Most modern people are probably unaware that parchment is actually made from skin, animal skin, that was stretched and scraped and dried. Mostly goats. Yeah, and uh, in, in some cases, in the, in the case of vellum, which was harder to come by, it was made with calf skin. And uh, some scholars argue that the Library of Alexandria actually was a major influence in the rise in popularity of parchment because papyrus became so hard to come by because the library was, was eating it all up. While it's hard to ascertain the veracity of historical claims like this, oh boy, I feel like I'm going to be saying that throughout this segment, uh, Greek philosopher and physician Galen reported that any ship visiting the city was obliged to surrender its books to the scribes of the library, who kept the original, but then provided the owners with a copy before they departed. The Library of Alexandria was almost certainly the largest library in the ancient world, housing at its height some half a million scrolls. Scholarly estimates vary, but uh, most believe that the library's collection housed somewhere between 40,000 and 400,000 scrolls at any given time. By comparison, the central stacks of the main branch of the New York Public Library today hold probably between 2.5 and 3.5 million books, though no one can say for sure. <laughs> Surprisingly enough, as of 2011, the New York Public Library had about 8.5 million items in total in its collection, which is an average of about 100,000 items in each of its 88 circulating libraries, although this figure also includes non-book items such as films and pictures and audio material. It's worth noting, however, that the four New York Public Library research centers house an additional 44.5 million items between them. I'm getting sidetracked. Well, this has been Library Cast. Thanks for tuning in, everyone. <laughs> I would listen to yeah. that. That's a lot of stuff. That is not the library that we're supposed to be talking about. Uh, okay, we're not even supposed to be talking about a library. Okay, I'll get to Hypatia. But first, in addition to its tens of thousands of scrolls, the library was home to lecture halls and gardens, and was part of the larger museum, or Institution of the Muses a research and teaching center that reportedly housed more than 1,000 scholars, which was in many ways analogous to a modern university. And of course, it's also the origin of the modern English word museum. While the library was indeed a major center of scholarship and culture in classical antiquity, it's probably best known for something else. What's the one thing that everybody knows about the Library of Alexandria? Burned down. It burned down. It's a little wet right now. Oh. Still makes nerds everywhere cry to think about it. Yeah. The fact that the library was burned to the ground, resulting in the permanent loss of many books, is arguably the most famous thing about the library. But I bet you can't tell me who set the fire. Mrs. O'Leary's cow. <laughs> Damn it! Goblin one! <laughs> uh. Now, that's not really a fair question. Uh, surprisingly enough, how and when the library was destroyed is actually uncertain. You'd think an event like that would be worth, I don't know, writing down in a history book. Stick it someplace safe where it could be studied and preserved? Someplace like a library, maybe? We actually do have several accounts of the burning of the library, but it's typically mentioned only in passing, and none of these accounts center their story on the library itself. For this reason, historians seem to agree that the library was in fact probably burned several times, but we're still not quite sure how many and how severe each of the burnings was. So Roman historian Plutarch
Plutarch notes that in 48 BCE, during the Great Roman Civil War, Julius Caesar was besieged at Alexandria and was forced to burn his own ships. The docks caught fire and the flames quickly spread to the Great Library, destroying it. However, Plutarch was writing nearly 150 years later, in the late 1st century CE, and while his story was apparently repeated by 4th century scholars Ammianus, Marcellinus, and Orosius, Plutarch's contemporaries, Florus and Lucan, disagree, stating that the fire didn't spread to the library, but only to a few houses on the coast. So we don't know for sure whether the library actually burned during uh, the siege at Alexandria, during Caesar's civil war. But whether it was damaged by Caesar or not, the library continued in some form, at least, until the city was taken in the late 3rd century by Emperor Aurelian. Historical accounts from the period report that the area of the city where the library was located was damaged in the fighting, although some sources claim that the Serapium, a small temple in another part of the city that housed part of the library's collection, actually survived the attack unscathed. But the stories that are told in popular culture about the destruction of the library often center on themes of the conflict between scientific scholarship and religious zeal. So here's where heresy comes in. Christian historian Socrates of Constantinople, who will make a few appearances in our story as the preeminent contemporary historian of the time, claims that the Serapium was later destroyed by Patriarch Theophilius of Alexandria when paganism was outlawed by Emperor Theodosius I in 391 CE. Though it's uncertain if the remaining collection of the library would still have been housed in the Serapium by this time. It may have been moved elsewhere because there were other great libraries throughout the Roman Empire and beyond. And finally, Alexandria fell to the Muslim army of Amr bin Al-Az in 642 CE. Later Arabic sources claim that Caliph Omar ordered the library destroyed, along with any books in its collection that, that contradicted claims in the Quran. However, these accounts come hundreds of years after the Muslim conquest of Egypt. Later scholars such as Gibbon and Renaudot do not see this account as credible, dismissing it as likely political propaganda. I'm no historian, but from the various accounts that I've read, the claims that the destruction of the library was motivated by religious fanaticism, either Christian or Muslim, seem pretty thin. It's hard to know what happened, but I'd probably blame a Caesar. <laughs> Always blame a Caesar. So, you can tell that the segment is going really well, because I'm, what, like 10, 15 minutes in and I haven't even mentioned the subject? Uh, so let's talk about Hypatia. Hypatia of Alexandria was a philosopher, mathematician, and astronomer whose story in popular culture is closely linked to the fall of the library. And indeed, she's often called the last librarian of the Library of Alexandria. Hypatia, the daughter of mathematician Theon of Alexandria, was born in Alexandria and educated in Athens. While the exact year of her birth is unknown, most scholars believe she was born between 350 and 360 CE, maybe as late as 370. And here's where some listeners might perk up their ears. Those who've been paying attention, that is, instead of vigorously jabbing at the skip 15 seconds button until they hear Laura's voice. Um, because you might have noticed that when the Library of Alexandria was destroyed, Hypatia probably hadn't even been born yet. It is unknown if she was present when the Serapium was destroyed by Theophilius in 391. She would have been in her 30s or maybe 40s at the most, but Hypatia was not a librarian at the Great Library. She was, however, a gifted teacher, becoming the head of the Neoplatonic School of Philosophy in Alexandria around 400 CE. She taught science, philosophy, and mathematics to students of diverse backgrounds. 
the Neoplatonic school accepted foreign and domestic students, both Christian and pagan. While Hypatia maintained a cordial relationship with her Christian students, including a pupil named Synesius, an early Trinitarian who later became Bishop of Ptolemais, she was devoted to the philosophies of Plato and Plotinus. But this didn't stop Christian historian Socrates of Constantinople, there's that name again, from describing her in pretty glowing terms. Quote, on account of the self-possession and ease of manner which she had acquired in consequence of the cultivation of her mind, she not infrequently appeared in public in the presence of the magistrates. Neither did she feel abashed in going to an assembly of men, for all men, on account of her extraordinary dignity and virtue, admired her the more. Hypatia was a well-respected figure in Alexandrian cultural life. She counseled politicians, and private lessons with Hypatia became a symbol of status among the city's elite. At this time, Alexandria was religiously and ethnically diverse, and tensions were starting to rise between various religious and political factions. Hypatia's acclaim was not universal. Later, church writers indeed condemned her as a pagan heretic, with Coptic bishop John of Nicu writing, quote, She was devoted at all times to magic, astrolabes, and instruments of music, and she beguiled many people through her satanic wiles. I love that. Music <laughs> and astrolabes are tools of magic. <laughs> yep. <laughs> None of Hypatia's academic work survives today, though secondary sources attest that her work was primarily in geometry and astronomy in addition to philosophy. A letter written to her by her former student Synesius, the bishop who I mentioned earlier, contains the first known historical reference to a hydrometer, which he asked her to have constructed for him. She is also known to have worked with astrolabes and other astronomical instruments. As we know, science is rarely apolitical in practice. Ari Belaniki of Israel's Bar Ilan University proposed that Hypatia's astronomy was actually instrumental in her death. Her work highlighted weaknesses in the Ptolemaic system used at the time, and Belenke argues that her calculations for the appropriate date of the vernal equinox in 414 and 415 CE stirred controversy regarding the timing of various religious festivals, including the appropriate date for Easter, mm -hmm. and this brought her into conflict with the newly appointed bishop of Alexandria, Cyril. So how dare you calculate better results than I do? More or less. Now, this is a minority view, and it's a relatively recent view that has been put forward actually in an astronomical journal. So we don't know for sure, but it's certainly an interesting thing to consider. So let's talk about her martyrdom for science. <laughs> At least that's the way it's typically uh, portrayed. In 415 CE, Hypatia was murdered by a mob during a citywide riot. Cyril, the aforementioned bishop of Alexandria, was attempting to consolidate political power around his religious authority, expelling Jews and Novatians, an early Christian sect, from the city. Cyril's ecclesiastical agenda was opposed by the Roman prefect of Alexandria, named Orestes, who saw Hypatia as an ally and frequently sought her advice in dealing with Cyril. Rumors began to spread among Alexandrian Christians that blamed Hypatia for the continued conflict between the prefect and the bishop, and eventually a mob of Christians led by a cleric named Peter waylaid Hypatia's chariot as she was passing in the street. I'll quote from the account of Socrates of Constantinople. Warning, this is a little graphic. 
Yet even she fell a victim to the political jealousy which at that time prevailed. For as she had frequent interviews with Orestes, it was calumniously reported among the Christian populace that it was she who prevented Orestes from being reconciled to the bishop. Some of them, therefore, hurried away by a fierce and bigoted zeal, whose ringleader was a reader named Peter, waylaid her returning home, and, dragging her from her carriage, they took her to the church called Caesarium, where they completely stripped her and then murdered her with tiles. After tearing her body in pieces, they took her mangled limbs to a place called Cineron, and there burnt them. Whoa. So, I'm going to end this segment on a cautionary note. And no, that caution isn't, don't piss off Alexandrian bishops named Cyril. Hypatia has long been a darling of science enthusiasts and skeptics. One passage attributed to Hypatia by early 20th century author Albert Hubbard reads, quote, Fables should be taught as fables myths as myths, and miracles as poetic fancies. To teach superstitions as truths is a most terrible thing. The child mind accepts and believes them, and only through great pain and perhaps tragedy can he be in after years relieved of them. In fact, men will fight for a superstition quite as quickly as for a living truth, often more so since a superstition is so intangible you cannot get at it to refute it. But truth is a point of view, and so is changeable. Great, right? I think we can all appreciate that sentiment. The only problem is that she never said it. Unfortunately, it appears that Hubbard invented virtually all of the famous quotations that are now attributed to Hypatia. Oh. But that didn't stop the Encyclopedia Britannica from using them as the basis of its article about her, suggesting that it was statements such as these that led Cyril to whip up the mob that killed her. That article has apparently since been revised, but we tend to like to fit historical figures into these tidy narratives that we have, and this framing of Hypatia as a champion of science who was brought down by religious fanatics is a common one, also appearing in the 2009 film Agora, starring Rachel Weiss, which, historical inaccuracies notwithstanding, does a pretty good job of showcasing the conflict between Cyril and Orestes, and I couldn't help but like it quite a bit. <laughs> Hypatia is typically portrayed as a force for secular science pitted against the regressive forces of religious dogma. It's a familiar story, right? And in some ways a comforting one. But Hypatia was a Neoplatonist philosopher, which means that while she did study astronomy and mathematics, she wasn't strictly a naturalist. She probably shared the mystical ideas espoused by Plotinus, who claimed that the first principle of reality is the One, an eternal, unknowable, perfect essence that creates all things and imbues them with purpose and meaning. She was a scientist, and she was killed by a religious mob, but it appears that her murder was likely motivated at least as much by politics as it was by religious fanaticism. So what am I saying? Well, it's my usual refrain. <laughs> Be skeptical. Be aware of your biases and be more skeptical of things you find it easy to believe. And be aware that we all have a tendency to take complex stories with lots of unknowns and try to fit them into familiar, simple narratives that we're comfortable with. As Dr. Ben Goldacre is so fond of saying, I think you'll find it's a bit more complicated than that. I find it distressing that to think about all of the like quotes that we attribute to people... So many of them are made up or changed or out of context. And to think about how many we will never learn <laughs> that they're wrong, that that bothers me more than the ones we know. <laughs> if that makes sense? Yep. 
don't know, that, that's kind of freeing in a way, because you come to realize that you're never sure about anything. And that's okay. Like, it's okay, it's, but it's still upsetting. But but you understand <laughs> that everything is provisional and subject to change. And what it leads me to do is when I find a really cool, compelling quote by Hypatia, I look up the source and I find it's this Albert Hubbard. And I'm like, oh, and yeah. that leads me to a re- down a really interesting rabbit hole that I wasn't previously aware of. And you can always dig deeper. Uh, so... If you're going to share a quote on the internet, find its source. You know, that's kind of the obvious lesson, I guess. But Well, sure, but I'm more thinking of, like, the the things that we will never know are misattributed because we don't can't go through those rabbit holes. Sure. And so if you don't find any source for it, then, like, don't assume it's actually the person. Or if you do find a source for it, recognize... Maybe somebody else said it first. Maybe maybe it was not Lincoln who said that. Maybe it was Lincoln's friend, Bill. Yeah, and who... he just repeated it more famously. Yeah. <laughs> and Lincoln was like, great, I'm going to steal that, right? <laughs> and we know that that happens all the time in modern days, so it, I'm sure it happened <laughs> in because the past. Abraham too. Lincoln was a horrible plagiarist. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to continue down our historical jaunt, and Laura's going to take us to the 1200s. Roger Bacon was a name with which I was not familiar prior to researching this. I was looking for heretics, and as you do, you Google list of heretics, philosophical heretics, scientific heretics, all these kinds of things. And his was a name that kept popping up on all these lists, and I just wasn't familiar with it. Granted, I'm not very familiar with scientific history and things like that. But Jem seemed to recognize the name, so I'm like, okay, so I see it all the time, Jem knows who it is, this seems like a good one, so I'll go for it. Now, when we hear the name Bacon, most people think of a more famous Francis Bacon. Frankie Bacon. Frankie Bacon, but that, uh, he... Frankie Bacon? <laughs> that was definitely, definitely his nickname. Only to his friends, yeah. of which I am one. <laughs> um, but uh, Francis Bacon is a couple centuries later, so we're not talking about that one. Roger Bacon was born somewhere between 1214 and 1220. We're not quite sure exactly on his birth date, partly because it wasn't recorded anywhere, and the and people are using a document that he wrote later in his life that referenced, it's been 40 years since I did my arithmetic or something, and so they're trying to figure out how old he would have been then and going backwards. So we don't know when he was born. Did he say four score and seven years ago? He did not. Absolutely did not. We believe That's where Lincoln got it from. <laughs> Damn it, Lincoln, every time. <laughs> and he died somewhere around 1292. <laughs> he was born to a wealthy family in England, and he did, a, as many sons of wealthy families did, he attended university, he went to Oxford University for many years, and he studied mainly the arts for the early part of his career. Uh, After that, he went to Paris, and he started lecturing, and then it was at this time that his focus shifted from the arts to the sciences. So he became very, very interested in the sciences at this time. And basically, he's a career scholar at this point. And after his time in Paris, he goes back to Oxford for an opportunity to do more 
learning and that. So I'll get into a little bit more of his life and and why he's on this podcast as it is in a moment. But the things for which is he, he is remembered is that he did some significant observations in the field of optics, um, particularly studies of reflection, refraction, the ebb and flow dynamics. Uh, he used a camera obscura quite early on. He also actually did work on calendar reform. So at this time, people were following the Julian calendar, and it was par- his work uh, that partly informed the eventual change to the Gregorian calendar or the current system. And he advocated that the Julian calendar was not exact. Um, But interestingly, because the the change to the Gregorian calendar happened about 300 years after his death, and he didn't get any credit for that, but he did do work on on it. He was also the first European to describe the formula and process for making gunpowder. So obviously gunpowder we know was developed in China, I believe. It was Asia for sure, several centuries prior, but he was the one who really documented this and, and thought of uses and made a formula for it. He was a very prolific writer. He published a lot of works, large volumes, 800 plus pages, which considering the time and that everything is handwritten, that was a phenomenal feat. And he did a lot of this in a matter of years. At times he would publish a huge volume every year. So it was very, very prolific. And he wrote on a lot of different topics. So, okay, he sounds like a scholar of that time. So what makes him kind of interesting at all? One of the most notable things about this guy is that he was very zealous. I mean, zealous is a term I think we're going to talk about a lot. Jem already mentioned it. He is known for his zeal in things. So when he switched from arts to sciences, he switched hardcore. And he just, that was his drive, his passion, everything about that. He also didn't appear to have much of a filter in his writings or his criticisms of other people either. Partly, he would be very nasty to people who didn't share his views, including many of his contemporaries. And part of his lack of filter is that he didn't follow the way that other things had been done. His writings were typically done in a different style of things, the way that he approached research and knowledge and what we should do for knowledge was different than the status quo and what was typically done. This in itself wasn't such a big problem until around 1257 when he became a friar, a Franciscan friar in the church. And that's when it started leading to some of the challenges for him. Now, we we should note, too, that so many of the well-known scholars in history have been part of religious organizations, particularly in the medieval period, because the religious organizations were the ones with the money and And the ones with the knowledge. They could read and write. Uh, They had the time, the abilities, all those kinds of things to actually do the schooling. And knowledge in the church were closely linked. Education in the church were closely linked. And Bacon was actually a very religious person, too. So again, he's a little bit different from some of the heretics or from the stories we hear about heretics because we think, oh, they're against the church and that. He was vehemently religious. When he was zealous. He was zealous about everything, and his religion was very important to him. One of the biggest things that he took on in his study of the sciences was the method of study, the method of learning. He was a big proponent and really a big advancer of the idea of Um, experimental science, backing things up with actual observations, trialing out hypotheses to get answers and truth. At this time, that's not how science was done. Science uh, itself wasn't, for a lot of groups, was not part of what you did. It it was very scripture-based and very much um, just 
well, this is the way that we think it is. This is the way that the Bible said it is. That's Therefore, that's what it is. And he was an advocate for going out into the world and looking at things. And if you have an idea about something, trying it out and seeing what happens. And he really believed that this was the way to go about things. So because of this belief, there are some people who even today think of him as one of the founders of the modern scientific movement because of his focus. This caused the problem for him because, again, that's not the way that things were going about in the church and even in study. So the traditionalists and that didn't like his approach to things. And because, of course, he was not one to censor his comments and he was one to be very loud and open with his criticisms, he brought a lot of attention to that fact. At this time, too, it was believed the value of outside sources of information was fairly low within the church, within the clergy, and such. Whereas Bacon saw the great value in reading other texts, particularly the Arabic texts and and the um, books on alchemy and, and mathematics, Um, He was also a big proponent of reading the scripture, but in its original languages. So in Greek, in Hebrew, and and reading other books in Arabic and such. Not only was he a scholar of sciences, but linguistics was a big part of his study as well. And some sources do claim that he spoke a lot of languages. Some sources say that he talked a lot about grammar. It's it's kind of up in the air, exactly. But he did believe that there was a lot of mistranslation into Latin. And because the current theological study was so inward-looking and outward-resistant, that there were a lot of theological problems that were cropping up because of that type of study and because people weren't learning it. So it was in that type of criticism that really, that people say that drew the ire of the church there. He wasn't saying anything against the church itself. He was saying that he wanted to know the world better, the natural world better, in order to know God better. That was his reason for doing things. And he felt that the church was losing opportunities to do that and was putting people down the wrong path. So he did get into some trouble there. But at one point after he became the friar, he did come into contact with a wealthy family friend who became his benefactor to fund this research and writing. And that family friend was shortly after elected the next pope. So he got a lot of protection during this time. (laughs) And when you read the accounts, it's sort of unclear, but he, he put together this huge, these four huge volumes of ideas, the Opus Majora, Opus Minae, or the Opus Minor, uh, and a couple other ones that are these huge things. And they were essentially the, the framework for a giant encyclopedia that would encompass the knowledge of the world in all of the areas of sciences that we had available to us. And it would be uh, done as a collaboration between the experts and the scientists. So it's very much an encyclopedia, the basis of what we think of as libraries and university knowledge and that today. So, and that's what he wanted to do. Um, He wanted to revamp the university curriculum. And he was actually a part of that over time with his insistence on, we should be looking at all these different sciences. So he put together these, these volumes. And some people will say that this family friend, the Pope Clement V, I believe, told him to do it in secret. Some people will say that he asked Clement to do it and Clement hid it. It's not entirely clear. 
at this time. But we do know that uh, friars were not supposed to be publishing things on their own. There was a ban on publishing anything that was not sanctioned by the church at this time. There are some sources that will say that, well, they were trying to keep a lid on any outside ideas. Other sources will say that it was wartime and there was not a lot of parchment to go around. And so parchment was expensive and they were trying not to spend a lot of resources on extra things. So both are really believable. You know, there's probably some of each column in there. I, I can't say for sure. They were still trying to make up the deficit from Alexandria. Exactly. <laughs> Damn it, Alexandria! <laughs> thousand years later. <laughs> so that Pope that saved him died in 1268, and Bacon couldn't really continue the progress on his work. So about 10 years after that, the accounts say that he was then imprisoned on charges of suspected novelties. <laughs> so what does that mean exactly so this comes did he have like drawers full of sex toys <laughs> <laughs> no but there is a lot of no it's wind up wind up teeth and whoopee cushions <laughs> oh. there is a lot of of myth and uh, apocrypha that goes along with Roger Bacon because he's be- become a bit of a, a cult hero in some ways so these novelties that he is apparently charged with are things like uh, his supposed beliefs in astrology, mysticism, alchemy, but, you know, the uh, the sword and the stone kind of alchemy, that yeah. kind. So those types of things that would be considered magic, right? Some people will also say that the charges were those type that suspected novelties charge was actually... Th- thought to be a cover for his conflicts with the contemporaries and with breaking with tradition and that. So they had to throw some charge on him to imprison him. Anyway, the the story goes that he was imprisoned for some amount of time and then didn't publish too much and then died in 1292. But we don't know if he was actually imprisoned. The first account of him being imprisoned came 80 years after his death and Again, it goes along with this these myths surrounding him, his beliefs. When I talk about the, the Apocrypha that goes with him, it's not just the, the, the alchemy and, and that, but it's really grand ideas for the time. So he is often connected with having a formula for making gold, having the formula for the Philosopher's Stone. He's connected with necromancy. He's said to have had a bit, big interest in that. There's ideas that he had a brazen head automaton um, that gave you uh, the answers to to questions asked. So there's a lot of stories like this. And a lot of these types of stories cropped up over the years after his death because he seemed he didn't have much of a legacy. And then people even around the time of Francis Bacon and that started to bring him back. They wanted to have him have his rightful place. And again, like cult heroes do, some of those really big stories come back at that time. Other stories that are a little less out there, but still very out there for the time are things that he had theorized flying machines and submarines and some of those types of things supposedly hundreds of years before Da Vinci and and such. So Uh we don't know if he necessarily did or if that's just the legend kept growing and growing. He did have some interesting ideas about things, and we know that he did have some accomplishments. So whether or not he was a heretic, it's hard to say. He was very well known as a very, very religious man, incredibly religious, and sort of like the definitions of heretics that we talked about at the beginning – so much so that he would criticize anyone who didn't go with his beliefs, even his own church, not because he didn't believe, but because he thought that they weren't seeing the true words of God. They weren't 
actually interpreting things appropriately. So we know that he was religious. His heresy would have had more to do with the political and the hierarchical structure of the church and the scholarly system at that time. So depending on who you talk to, he was either seen as a visionary, a lone wolf, ahead of his time, working outside of the the known realm of things, bra- breaking new paths for people, and he, sh- he deserves his rightful place in history. Other people will say that he was a cranky old man. He had weird ideas. He was a brilliant man, yes. He was very intelligent, but he wasn't outstanding compared to his contemporaries that are more well-known at that time. He fit right in. What often set him apart was the fact that he was willing to openly and viciously criticize anybody who sort of got in his way. So that's a brief history of Roger Bacon. He definitely had some great accomplishments to add to the field of study. Nothing way out of left field, but he definitely added things to it. And his methods for approaching research and insisting on actual evidence are things that we still use today. Wait, sorry, Laura and I were laughing earlier, but did you actually get through that entire segment without once calling him Friar Bacon? (laughs) There's actually, there's a lot of stories about a Friar Bacon, and some of them are joke stories. (laughs) (laughs) I I first read about uh, Roger Bacon. He's name-checked several times in Umberto Eco's The Name of the Rose, which is um, an excellent book if you're a, I guess, Middle Ages religion nerd. Which Um, I am, and it's a great book. Yeah, yeah. A medieval murder mystery in a monastery full of monks. Some of his religious stuff, some of the religious stuff is a little suspect. Yeah, well, yeah. It's still good fun. about Darwin, somebody that comes up a lot when people think about heretical scientists. Never heard of him. <laughs> uh, we're Wait, not... Was he the dolphin from Sequest? Yes. Okay, I'm good. Go on. Darwin was born into a Unitarian family, but it was a time when the Anglican Church of England was very much in power. That was sort of the big deal church of the day in England. His mother took him to a Unitarian church, but when she died, he began attending an Anglican boarding school. And I believe his father was also Anglican. And so they were balancing those two. And he was... Not super religious, but definitely, like, I wouldn't call him a zealot. He was not full of zeal, as some of our other people have been. Uh, But he was definitely convinced uh, of the Bible's, like, literal truth when he was younger. So he went to boarding school. He didn't need to earn a living. His dad was really well off, so he wasn't in a position where he needed to get an education and find a job. He eventually washed out of medical school. He wasn't a great student. His father never expected him to amount to much based on a lot of their writings. Uh, So when he washed out of medical school, his father encouraged him to become a clergyman. Back in the day, natural history, just like in uh, Bacon's time, was kind of studying God's creation. It was very much like, let's go and check out all of these cool things that God made and describe them. And so clergymen were often naturalists. 
uh, and that was very entwined. And so Darwin was kind of interested in beetles and interested in dissecting things. <laughs> and that was kind of his only big interest in life. Was he into barnacles yet? Because he got weirdly into barnacles. He got super into barnacles, and that delayed the publication of his very famous books for a long time, but he was not yet into barnacles at this (laughs) point. Um. (laughs) Well, I guess that's the Voyage of the Beagle, right? Yeah. So he went to get his BA as a first step to becoming a clergyman and getting like a nice cute little parish somewhere where he could sit down and study things and not really care much about religion. Uh, (laughs) So he later wrote about his thoughts uh, upon entering this part of his life's journey. From what little I had heard and thought on the subject, I had scruples about declaring my belief in all the dogmas of the Church of England, though otherwise I liked the thought of being a country clergyman. Accordingly, I read with care Pearson on the Creed and a few other books on divinity, and as I did not then in the least doubt the strict and literal truth of every word in the Bible, I soon persuaded myself that our creed must be fully accepted. It never struck me how illogical it was to say that I believed in what I could not understand and what is in fact unintelligible. So, yikes! he was totally convinced about the Bible and was on his way to becoming a clergyman. And then some guy wanted a gentleman naturalist to accompany him on his voyage on the Beagle, and he accepted and wandered off around the world. His voyage on the Beagle was to change his views on religion quite dramatically. Uh, again, from his journals, During these two years, I was led to think much about religion. Whilst on board the Beagle, I was quite orthodox, and I remember being heartily laughed at by several of the officers for quoting the Bible as an unanswerable authority on some point of morality. I suppose it was the novelty of the argument that amused them, but I had gradually come by this time to see that the Old Testament, from its manifestly false history of the world, with the Tower of Babel, rainbow as a sign, etc., etc., and from its attributing to God the feelings of a revengeful tyrant, was no more to be trusted than the sacred books of the Hindus or the beliefs of any barbarian... So, you know, Darwin was super racist, as many, many people were in his day, and uh, these things kind of reflect that. Once again, his journals from 1838 records, All September, read a good deal on many subjects, thought much upon religion, beginning of October, ditto. (laughs) (laughs) Excellent notes, Darwin. (laughs) So he did a lot of thinking about religion, and his observations of animals really did sort of form his like beginning of the break from the church for him. So he uh, looked at all of these different things that had evolved in different places and was basically like, well, if God took one species and made it into the next species and this was all foreordained, then there would be no reason for any of this. And so he just, it sort of kept becoming more and more implausible to him that the Bible would be true. This was very distressing to his cousin and wife, who mm-hmm. was very religious And they did a lot of talking about it and a lot of writing about it. And she wrote him a letter that was like, I'm very concerned for your soul. And he apparently wrote at the bottom of it something like, Ditto. (laughs) (laughs) When I die, know that I have thought about this and cried about it and kissed it many times. He didn't want her to be upset when he died that he was going to hell or whatever. He had several children. One of them died of scarlet fever. And that was sort of his complete end of believing in any kind of religion at all. So he wrote about how he remembered her, but not about anything about how she was going to, you know, go to heaven, and uh, he didn't believe that there was an afterlife, and so on and so forth. After the Voyage of the Beagle, and after figuring out the whole descent and evolution thing, 
he, oh, just that. Yeah, that, that whole thing. He he kind of sat on his ideas for a long time. He got really into barnacles. <laughs> uh, but he was also, he was not doing well. He was kind of sick, and he had other work to do. But he was also, um, according to some of his notes, he was really worried that if he published this book, the fact that it sort of went against what Genesis said would really upset his wife. And he feared that because his ideas went against the account in Genesis, his book would challenge the religion that comforted his wife. So it gave his wife a lot of comfort that she thought that her loved ones were in heaven and that, you know, God was taking care of her. And he was worried that this would sort of shatter that worldview. Although they did, like, they talked about all of this all of the time. So I'm not sure why, like, publishing the book would have been the last straw. I guess because it would have brought a lot of attention to it. Do you think maybe his wife in this case was like a stand-in for other people in similar situations that maybe. he hadn't talked with? Yeah, yeah. Uh, he also wanted to accumulate as much evidence as possible. That's what he, like, but it was a long time that he sat on this stuff. Yeah, <laughs> yeah like decades, so, right? Yeah, it was quite a long time. And then, of course, he famously received the manuscript from uh, from Wallace and was like, crap, i got to publish this. <laughs> <laughs> I'm being scooped! Yeah. So he got on that and it got published. It was um, something that I thought was really interesting when I first learned it was that it was a very popular book. Like, it sold out immediately. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. And they had to keep reprinting it because, it like, people wanted to read it. And I always thought that was interesting, like, uh, as a younger person going into the sciences, I figured it was just sort of only read by the other fellow scientists or whatever. But no, it was a big popular bestseller. (laughs) It's, like, very readable, especially for a book of its time, like, even today. Uh, Yeah. I I read it when we did the the Common Creationist uh, Claims to a two-parter. It was serialized in magazines of the day and everything. Yeah, very popular. He did not include anything about human evolution in his first book. So that was sort of his compromise to not hurt his wife, I guess, or (laughs) theoretical other people. So he he never commented on human evolution. He left that for the descent of man. (laughs) Uh, So initially, it was, like I said, very popular, and there was also a bunch of outcry. But it wasn't, as is commonly thought, like the first time this whole foufara had occurred. There had been several other books talking about how man had not been divinely created and perhaps was some other way came to be. But it was definitely another blip on the scale, I guess, Mm of, oh god, we're talking about this again. So what I thought was interesting when I was researching this was I could not find any information about any church that declared him a heretic. (laughs) That did not actually happen, I guess. So I was particularly interested in looking up the reaction from the Catholic Church, uh, because I know now they are kind of cool with evolution. Like, yeah, you can believe in God and also believe in evolution. And basically, it looks like they kind of just sat on their hands and were like, we're just going to see what happens with this whole evolution thing. (laughs) They didn't really put out a statement or anything. They just kind of watched it happen and didn't comment much. Like, there was definitely some popes that said some stuff about evolution, but it was mostly like, yeah, sure, as long as you believe that God started it and had a hand in everything, then fine. (laughs) Which is funny because that is clearly not Darwin's position. I mean, maybe with the started it thing... But the whole tinkering, that was Darwin's, like, the main thesis was mm-hmm. natural selection, right? Not divine selection. Yeah. There was a famous debate in 1860 where a bunch of people came together and were 
fighting about the back and forth, and I thought it was interesting. So Darwin himself basically avoided all of the controversy by just being sick and <laughs> staying home. And so there are some different theories about like whether he was actually as ill as he claimed to be, or whether he was just avoiding everything. <laughs> I'm and, sick. <laughs> yeah, because he was still putting out a lot of work. Like he was right. still doing a lot of stuff. He just wasn't dealing with the public at all. <laughs> um, but he was also corresponding a lot with other people who were defending his work. Like Thomas Henry Huxley. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> so he uh, he would write letters back and forth to people who, who agreed with him and also people who disagreed with him. And then there's a couple of accounts of, like, he got sick of dealing with the people who were arguing with him, so he would just stop writing them letters, which seems pretty expedient. Yeah. <laughs> I do that with emails I don't want to deal with. Exactly. <laughs> um, I, I didn't know this before. I thought this was interesting. The captain of the Beagle, uh, Robert Fitzroy was actually more uh, upset and involved with the controversy than Darwin was. So at this famous debate where they were talking about evolution as pros and cons, whether it was true, he... Was this the debate debate with Wilberforce? I think so. <laughs> okay, sorry. Sorry. So at the debate, he burst into the room uh, holding aloft a Bible and implored the audience to believe God rather than man. Wow. <laughs> so he was, like, really upset that he had been involved in uh, this theory being publicized, I guess. And uh, apparently the largely scientific crowd shouted him down. <laughs> uh, so I thought that was interesting. Uh, yeah, so now there are many people in the world who believe that Darwin is a heretic, that he speaks out against what God created and is promoting an idea that is clearly contrary to the count of Genesis. But I couldn't really find any churches who have been like, yes, Darwin is a heretic and you must not believe this thing that he says. Like, there are like evangelical Christian sects that definitely say evolution did not happen, it's not true, and yada yada. Darwin is not an official heretic according to any church that I could find. Now, do you think that's because he is so much more recent and because we've been living in an increasingly pluralistic global society, deviating from the norm of an in-group is a lot more common? Yes and no. I think that like back in the 14th century, he would definitely have been a heretic, no problem, right away. Um, but I think that secularism had gained such a foothold that it maybe just wasn't even worth it to them to declare him an official heretic. You know what I mean? Like it, I don't think they could do anything to him right? because yeah. it, the church didn't have the power that it used to. Yeah. So because it was a very like divided issue, it was more 50, 50 than it was like, I don't know, 99 to one back in <laughs> the day of like Galileo or whatever. Uh, that they, they didn't have the power or the... It would have been almost a bad PR move to, like, try and get him executed. Well, if you're already <laughs> losing people, you're, you know, it's just another slap in the face, right? You're not going to gain anything, yeah. Yeah. The more you tighten your fist, the more systems will slip through your fingers. <laughs> <sighs> but yeah, so I, I liked seeing how my ideas about the church and Darwin were very wrong. There were some churches who were very much like, yes, this, this seems like a very plausible theory. Uh, this is definitely the mechanism that God used to create everything on the earth. So they were like super behind it. Yeah. Uh, and then there was churches like uh, the Catholic church that were just like, do, 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 we didn't see anything. Just continue <laughs> on with your life. Yeah. <laughs>
So on the theme of people who were not really heretics, or at least not heretics because of their science, Lauren has a few interesting folks for us to learn about. As we found, throughout history, scientists were persecuted and or killed for other reasons than their actual discoveries. For most of history, the thinky folks worked in many different areas, as Laura said. It's only been the last century or so that learning has become heavily specialized. So ever the contrarian, I have chosen to do some short bios of folks who are commonly thought to have been labeled heretics and or martyred for their scientific beliefs. But in a shocking twist, they were labeled for other reasons. Also in another funny twist of diversity, all of the ones I've chosen were labeled heretical by different religious schools of thought. (laughs) (laughs) Keep with the theme of the show. Let's go from oldest to newest, starting with about 200 years before the common era with Archimedes of Syracuse. We don't know much about Archimedes' personal life, but we know he invented several concepts and developed mathematical theories basically giving birth to the field of calculus. His inventions include the Archimedes screw, the much-touted heat ray, Mythbusters fame, and my personal favorite, the ship-shaken claw. His discoveries include the measurement of a circle and displacement. Eureka! So why would anyone want him dead for that? Though short story is, they didn't. During the siege of Syracuse, as the story goes... Archimedes died valiantly attempting to protect his work, with his last words being, Noli Toberis With his last words being, Do not disturb my circles! <laughs> that's great. That's a double laugh because that's hilarious, last words, and it's also hilarious that you started in Latin or Greek and then Greek. you were just like, uh. <laughs> <laughs> I practiced it? And then I went, No, we're doing this in the translation. Of course, there's no evidence that he ever said that. And it doesn't show up until the writings of Valerius Maximus about 300 years later. It was not in Plutarch's biography of him. We don't know what really happened, of course. There are a couple schools of thought surrounding his death. Thought the first. Though General Marsilaeus of the Roman forces demanded his safety, a soldier killed him by accident. <laughs> oh, what's this old man doing here? You just get excited. There's a dude just, there. You just start killing, you know. Yeah. <laughs> People get in your way. Playing in the dirt. I'm going to stab you. <laughs> Thought the second, though Marsilaeus demanded his safety, a soldier killed him to rob him of his expensive scientific equipment. Thought the third, though Marsilaeus demanded his safety, his death was necessary for Rome to win the battle and take the city, so a soldier was dispatched to make it look accidental. This is the theory that claims he was killed for his scientific mind, because once they killed this 70-something-year-old man, the city would fall? The truth? Who knows? But it was probably the first one. (laughs) So now we're going to skip forward 700 years... And we're going to move over to Spain. Michael Servetus was a genius who just couldn't buy a break. He was the first European to describe the process of pulmonary circulation. He was a theologian, a doctor, cartographer, and a brilliant mind. He also made the worst choices. He participated in the Protestant Reformation after being disgusted by the pomp and circumstance surrounding the coronation of Holy Roman Emperor Charles. Not ten months after the coronation, he published his work On the Errors of the Trinity. I believe uh, you mispronounced the common phrase pulp in circumstance. So his work, The Heirs of the Trinity, ruffled a few feathers. He moved to France, and he assumed a fake name to avoid the Spanish Inquisition. (laughs) Nobody expects the Spanish Inquisition! And in France, he studied and became a doctor. Not just any doctor, of course. Not our Michael. He became the personal physician to the Archbishop of Vienne. He started a clandestine correspondence, well in France, with John Calvin, (laughs) and continued to publish anti-Trinitarian works that refuted predestination. And they described pulmonary circulation in these works, because of course they did. 
<laughs> Wait, so I assumed he was an ally of John Calvin, but you're saying he was refuting predestination? I mean, Cal- Calvinism is all about predestination. We're getting there. Oh, okay. Yeah. These works that he started publishing angered Calvin, who broke off their correspondence after Servetus sent back a copy of Calvin's book with heavy annotations. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Old school fisking. <laughs> yep. Calvin had his friend denounce Michael to the French Inquisition, who questioned and imprisoned him. He escaped, but was quickly apprehended and given over to the Catholic Church, because, you know, Calvin goes to the Catholics when he needs to. Right. Yeah. Servetus was condemned on two counts, being both anti-Trinitarianist and anti-Pedo-Baptism, which is the baptism of infants. They also obliquely accused him of being gay, using the phrase, whether he was married And if he answers that he has not, he shall be asked why, in consideration of his age, he should refrain so long from marriage. (laughs) He was also accused of consorting with Jews and Turks and of reading the Koran. (laughs) Oh, God. Accused of reading a book? Mm Mm-hmm. John Calvin believed Servetus deserved death on account of what he termed as his execrable blasphemies. So don't mess with John Calvin, apparently. (laughs) Calvin argued that Servetus should be beheaded, but others argued he should be burned at the stake. And on October 27, 1553, he was, atop a pile of his own books. Not because he could science or medical real good, but because he wasn't a fan of the Trinity. Or John Calvin. (laughs) (laughs) Next, we're sort of sticking around the, the, the 1500s through the 1700s. It seems to be a prime time for denouncing people as heretics. Giordano Bruno. He was an Italian Dominican friar, he was a philosopher, he was a mathematician, he was a poet, and a cosmological theorist. He conceptually extended the uh, Copernican model of the universe, basically saying, I don't think it's a firmament, I think there's infinite amounts of stars, and infinite amounts of planets surrounding them. He was one of the first to propose that stars were just distant suns surrounded by their own exoplanets, and he raised the possibility that these planets could foster life of their own. So that's cosmic pluralism, and that is one of the reasons, that is the only scientific reason that he was condemned. He also insisted, of course, that the universe was infinite and had no celestial body at its center. So Bruno wandered a lot, and he went to London, he went to France, he was attacked by a mob, then he went to Germany. Bruno landed in Venice, where he was denounced to the Inquisition, which sent him to Rome. Not a good place for heretics. No. The charges that were laid against Bruno were holding opinions contrary to the Catholic faith, holding opinions contrary to the Catholic faith about Trinity, divinity of Christ, and incarnation, holding opinions contrary to the Catholic faith pertaining to Jesus as Christ, holding opinions contrary to the Catholic faith regarding the virginity of Mary, mother of Jesus, holding opinions contrary to the Catholic faith about transubstantiation and mass, believing in metempsychosis and the transmigration of human souls into brutes, Holy moly. dealing in magics and divination, and claiming the existence of a plurality of worlds and their eternity. Bruno defended himself both in Venice and in Rome, and he was insisting that he accepted the church's teachings, but he was trying to preserve the basis of his philosophy. And then he was sentenced to die. His tongue was imprisoned because of his wicked words, he was hung upside down naked, and then he was burned at the stake. His tongue was imprisoned? Yep. They put his tongue in a little cage. Oh, jeez. Yep. They burned him, threw his ashes in the Tiber. But it had nothing to do with the fact that he thought, maybe there's other worlds. Well, it had a a tiny little bit. Tiny little bit. But it was mostly the other stuff. Yeah. (laughs) It's because he said, I believe in aliens, 
And I don't think this bread is actually Christ. <laughs> that was the more heretical part. Yeah. My final heretic who isn't is Baruch Spinoza. Spinoza was born in the Netherlands in 1632 and was of Portuguese Jewish descent. He died young at age 44 of semi-natural causes. <laughs> we don't know exactly what caused Spinoza to be labeled a heretic, but it wasn't because of his major treatise, Ethics, which was published posthumously. He was expelled from the Jewish community in Amsterdam in 1656 when he was 23. So he had 20 years after that to write ethics. Some ideas for his expulsion include a crackdown on the Jewish community by the local authorities, which led to them ridding the congregation of their problem children. It was also his refusal to give money to the synagogue, and the fact that he used the local court system instead of the synagogue rabbis when he sued his sister over their father's will. A lot of reasons to kick him out. His writ of Sherem, or expulsion, was considered unduly harsh, and it's kind of amazing. I would like to read the translation, if I may. The lords of the Ma'adam, having long known of the evil opinions and acts of Baruch de Espinoza, have endeavored by various means and promises to turn him from his evil ways. But having failed to make him mend his wicked ways, and, on the contrary, daily receiving more and more serious information about the abominable heresies which he practiced and taught, and about his monstrous deeds, and having for this numerous trustworthy witnesses who have deposed and borne witness to this effect in the presence of said Espinoza, they became convinced of the truth of the matter. And after all of this have been investigated in the presence of honorable sages, they have decided, with their consent, that the said Espinoza should be excommunicated and expelled from the people of Israel. By the decree of the angels and by the command of the holy men, we excommunicate, expel, curse, and damn Baruch de Spinoza, with the consent of God, blessed be he, and with the consent of all the holy congregation, in front of these holy scrolls, with the 613 precepts which are written therein, with the excommunication with which Joshua banned Jericho, with the curse in which Elisha cursed the boys, and with all the curses which are written in the book of law. Cursed be he by day, and cursed be he by night. <laughs> cursed be he when he lies down, and cursed be he when he rises up. Cursed be he when he goes out, and cursed be he when he comes in. The Lord will not spare him. The anger and wrath of the Lord will rage against this man, and bring upon him all the curses which are written in this book. And the Lord will blot out his name from under heaven, and the Lord will separate him to his injury from all the tribes of Israel, with all the curses of the covenant which are written in the book of law. But ye who cleave unto the Lord God are all alive this day. We order that no one should communicate with him orally or in writing, or show him any favor, or stay with him under the same roof, or within four ells of him, or read anything composed or written by him. Whew. That was extensive. <laughs> I know. They really, really wanted to leave no stone unturned with that one. A lot of cursing. Yeah. Yeah. So they apparently did a lot of these writs, but his was the most harsh <laughs> that most people had seen. So it wasn't just a fill in the blanks? No. Baruch Spinoza in the middle there? So his book, Ethics, is a masterpiece, and he spent the next 20 years communicating with other philosophers. He was a um, correspondent of Descartes and part of the Dutch philosophical renaissance. And his ethics laid the groundwork for modern biblical criticism. And it's mm -hmm. still used today in a lot, of, uh, a lot of contexts. It was written over the next 20 years, as I said, when he plied his trade as a lens maker for all sorts of telescopes and microscopes and the like. And this work as a lens maker probably gave him the lung disease, which led to his early death. He breathed in ground glass. Yep, mm. that's what happened. 
And those are my non-heretics. <laughs> I always uh, assumed that uh, Spinoza had been condemned for his panentheism, or pantheism, depending on who you ask. There was uh, charges of atheism later in life, but he is considered the first agnostic Jew, kind of. Everybody claimed in his later life that he led... He had um, ideas that of goodness, and he lived by his by his ideals, his ethics. If he you lived will. by his ethics, yes. Not heretics, but they were still convicted of heresy, just not for their sciency leanings. Yeah, sciency, non-sciency heretics. Sure. I don't know. I just wanted to do some short bios. I couldn't decide on a a single heretic. Uh, I also read um, an interesting article that was basically putting forth the same idea, are all great scientists really heretics? So there's kind of this idea that if you have a truly great idea in science, then you're going to be labeled a heretic until you're proven right. (laughs) And to an extent, that's true. I mean, you have to accumulate the body of evidence to show that your amazing idea is right. And as we accumulate more and more evidence for everything, that bar gets higher and higher. Mm -hmm. You got to pass the bacon test. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so I thought it was interesting to look back at some people who have had issues in the past and uh, not talk about Galileo. Galileo! Galileo. <laughs> what are we talking about next month, Jem? Oh, shit. The tables have been turned. <laughs> um, Heretic, you didn't do your research. I have no idea. It's a surprise. So that's all for us today, folks. Thanks for joining me. Come out to Skepta Camp. Good night, everybody. Good night. Cheers. Good night. Life, the Universe, and Everything Else is produced by Ashlyn Noble and Jem Newman. The best way to support the show is with a review on Stitcher or Apple Podcasts, or by sharing an episode with a friend. Ian James produces original music for the show. This episode featured additional music from Queen and the Mountain Goats and was edited by Lauren Bailey. Life. Don't talk to me about life. Uh, Surprisingly enough, how and when the library was destroyed is actually uncertain. You'd think an event like that would be worth... I don't know, writing down in a history book. Well, they didn't have any library to put it in, Jeff. <laughs> you stole <laughs> my joke! <laughs> yes! Even better! Thank you, Lauren! You know, maybe you'd write it down in a history book. Uh, <laughs> and he still goes ahead with it. Uh, she'll cut it out. That's fine. She controls the edit. She controls the jokes. Julius Caesar. Julius Caesar. Uh, as it was probably pronounced. Uh, Turtle tattoos. Did you say he was a catographer? Cartographer. Is who uh, sketches cats? <laughs> yes. He's a cartographer. It really sounded like catographer. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry. Plotinus? Plotinus. Plotinus? Plotinus. Was made... <laughs> Stop laughing at me! I think this is interesting background information. And no one cares. It has no relevance to your story. You don't think it's interesting? It's that... very interesting. That doesn't make it Can relevant. Can we save it for the paper podcast, please? <laughs> this has been papercast. <laughs> also, you said Pergamon on a roll. Pergamon or Pergamum depending on which part of the empire you are... Okay. (laughs) She who controls the edit controls the jokes.